Uh, Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, uh, God, that you give us a word to even draw on. God, I pray that you, we would get strength from it, God, and insight into how we should live better. God, uh, um, not, not just to hear the words, but to put these words to practice in our own life. God, there are a lot of tough, uh, tough decisions that we always have to make on a day-to-day basis even, uh, that, God, that we need faith uh, to get through the day. And I pray that, uh, Lord, as we continue to unpack uh, and see the way that Joseph lived his life and how others throughout the scripture have, have set themselves up as an example for ourselves, God, that we might, uh, that we might better ourselves, that we might uh, grow and, and understand how to be more like your, your children. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we left off. It was the great reveal, finally. Joseph finally, uh, after playing this charade of not really telling his brothers that he was, his, in fact, their brother, uh, led them. Uh, they kept thinking he was dead all this time. He let them think that. And then finally, at this moment in time where he could not resist it anymore, uh, and after testing them quite a bit, uh, he, he kind of was waiting to see if they had actually were the same brothers, if they had repented, or if they still had in their heart the kind of evil and wickedness that they had to put him in this pit. Uh, but he even relieved them of that. Uh, the, the, the great reveal was so powerful because what you saw in there was this grace and mercy. Instead of this revengeful Joseph who had been sitting in prison or you know, had, had been a, a slave, uh, all these things for all this time, instead of what you and I would probably do or what most people would have done and, and would not have blamed him, is to get revenge on those brothers. But he doesn't get revenge. He says, you know what? God put me here for a purpose, and the purpose was to save your lives. That God revealed to him uh, uh, that this country, uh, Egypt, was going to have, and everybody in the known world was going to have this famine, and because of this famine, somebody was going to have to do something about it. And he was in the right prison at the right time for the right purpose, for the right speaking engagement in front of the right leader, Everything lined up just right. And Joseph had this great view of hindsight of knowing that God had done that. And he had no doubt that it was through faith that God was working through all those bad things, all those times that he's probably depressed or overwhelmed with his circumstances, thinking to himself, I'm unjustly put in this spot. Yet God had a plan all along to save his brothers. And so finally, the, the dad is coming back. Uh, they're moving the whole family down. And it says, Joseph goes out to meet him, and they're crying and weeping and hugging. And this is where we're kind of left off in this great family reunion. So what's next now? The family saved. Can't we just put a period at the end of this sentence and be done and move on? Well, it's not quite that way. Uh, just like our lives is not, it doesn't just end when we accept Christ as our Savior, it's not like, you know, we're done, <laughs> you know, relax, kick up your feet, and, but there's more to become. There's more to be done. Uh, so Joseph uh, immediately goes into a plan and some strategies here, and we'll kind of unpack possibly what are the reasons why he has these strategies in mind already. Uh, so the end of uh, Genesis 46, we left off on verse 31, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh, and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, they tend uh, livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you and then in, and in asks, what is your occupation? You should answer and say, your servants have tended livestock uh, from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. 
Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all the shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Now, interesting to me that Joseph already had planned this out. He had already thought this through. It's almost like he knew from the time he saw his brothers on the first day bowing to him to the time that they got him to the land of Goshen. Now, granted, a lot of time had to go through because Canaan to Egypt is not a short trip. Uh, This is the third trip that they had made down. You know, this is like weeks long kind of thing. So this is the course of over several years that this occurred. Uh, There's still five years left in the famine, so they're not out of the woods yet. That's why he enticed them to come down in the first place, because there were many more days, bad days coming uh, still. Uh, But he had a plan. He said, hey, just tell them you're shepherds. This is this is good good news story, is what uh, Joseph is saying. Uh, why did he come up with shepherds? Well, we know, metaphorically speaking, that Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd throughout Scripture. Uh, so there's got to be a connection right here. There's got to be a link. Possibly. Uh, I think part of it is the idea that if they had stayed in Canaan, they were already starting to have problems. You could see how Judah... Uh, was married into some Canaanite women. Uh, his, he had some practices that weren't quite, you know, godly or Hebrew-like. Uh, his oldest son was killed by God because God said, this guy's evil. And it was the only son that actually had a Hebrew name. The other two sons didn't even have Hebrew names. They were starting to assimilate into the culture in Canaan. Now, there's this, what seems to be this perfect setup here. They come down here And there's this reason that they would be separate or live apart from the Egyptians. And Joseph's given it to him. He says, you know what? Just say that you're shepherds because that's detestable. Like these guys, they they think themselves too highly of themselves to deal with animals. Um, Now, spiritually, what does that say about us? Well, I think in some respects, I think some people look at us and we follow Jesus, the good shepherd, and I think they find our life detestable. I think they think they look at us and they say, well, you know what? It's almost like it's crazy that you love people that hate you, that you do things for others in ways that the rest of the world just simply won't do. Why would you do that? And that lifestyle, that Christian lifestyle, is flat out detestable to people. They can't wrap their head around it. They don't understand why you do it. They think it's foolishness in some cases. And honestly, we are kind of set apart. Just like these guys are going to be set apart in the land of Goshen from the Egyptians, Christians, we should look like we're different from the rest of the world. We are somewhat set apart from what everybody else does. We do have different standards, and it shows. So then the story plays out. Joseph tells them what to say. He gives them the script. And now they go in front of Pharaoh. Now turn the page to Genesis 47 or turn your chapter wherever you are. Uh, Joseph went and told Pharaoh, he says, My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own, have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, what is your occupation? He says, your servants are shepherds. And they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, we have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Now, why he took five brothers, I really don't know. Why didn't he take all 11? I, I just conjecture. I have no idea. Perhaps he didn't want to overwhelm Pharaoh, but he only took the five. Uh, and for the most part, the script plays out just as Joseph told them then. But then, verse 4, it says, then they also added. This is off script. You know, you just love it when you tell your kids to do something, and then they go off script, and they don't do exactly what you tell them to do. Um, and I, I 
kind of sat and pondered this verse quite a while and tried to wonder, like, what are the implications of them uh, going off script here? They're, they're actually begging. All right, keep in mind, like, this is a weird situation, right? Pretend for a minute that your government, or the state of Maryland, had all the food, and you had none, and you knew that your survival depended on your ability to go to the state of, you know, the governor of the Maryland or whatever, and say to him, like, hey, I just need a place to live, um, there's nowhere else to live, and you got all the food, I'm begging you, can you give us a place to stay? It's a very humble place to be, and perhaps they may were feeling a little bit desperate that the fact that they went off script here and kind of pleaded before Pharaoh and begged a little bit. But I also wonder if there's a sense of, like, uh, I guess, respect that they were showing. There's a sense of honor that they were showing to this guy. He's obviously a figurehead. Um, think about this. Joseph was second in command, had people bowing down to him all the time. He just really... Uh, only next to Pharaoh, basically, was the only word that was higher than Joseph's authority. But Joseph never forgot that he was working for Pharaoh. That Joseph, even in this circumstance, even though he had brought his family down there, he was still checking off with Pharaoh, showing great respect and honor to Pharaoh by bringing his family before Pharaoh and saying, hey, do you mind... I have my family here now. It's like, you know, you go on a vacation or something, and all of a sudden your kids want to bring 10 other friends, and it's like, hey, do you mind, Dad, if we bring all my friends and the rest of the neighborhood? It's almost, it's, it's very forward of them to just show up on the door and just assume that all this food is just for their taking kind of thing. Instead, what they do is they show great respect and honor to Pharaoh. So it got me thinking about respect and honor. And I can't tell you enough from this position how many times I have heard scream liberal, Democrat, conservative, this or that, whatever, whatever your flavor of your party is, um, how disrespectful both sides can be and how dishonoring they can be towards our elected officials. And there are verses such as this in Romans 13 where, where Paul argues, he says, pay your taxes for those uh, same reasons for the government workers need to get paid. They are serving God. And the Romans were not good people. They, they were horrible people. They took advantage of people all the time. And Paul, to say this, was probably a hard pill to swallow for anybody. He says, give it to everyone that you owe them. He says, pay your taxes and the government fees, those who collect them, and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. This is not an easy topic for some people. <laughs> this is something that many get a trip and a foothold on, and, and it's hard. Um, Einstein... Uh, has an interesting quote that I think kind of kind of fits in with this. He says, unthinking respect for authority is the greatest enemy of truth. Well, how does that jive biblically? It's like that, that's a, let's, let me say that again. Unthinking respect for authority is the greatest enemy of truth. Is he right? Is he wrong? Is that really what the Bible's telling us to do? Is that what Paul's telling us to do? To just, without thinking, just give honor and respect wherever it goes? Uh, I mean, there is some truth to that, maybe, because the Scripture says, uh, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. So the Scripture says, well, stand up to authority. If they're doing something wrong, you should say something to authority, right? That's, that's kind of what you can take from that, maybe. Or Matthew, it says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people give account for every careless word that they speak. In other words, judgment belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to you. So do I say something? Do I stand up to government? Do I have an opinion? Do I think? Do I not think? Like, what is my, what is my point of bringing? Do, how do I show honor and respect without being judgmental or without 
being like in one of these jerk parties kind of thing. Well, Scripture also says this. This is If you heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. Now, I pose the question again. If our government is taking advantage, or if somebody is taking advantage, if anybody is an authority that is taking advantage, and they are supposed to be God's servant, and you're supposed to respect and honor them, is turning the, the other cheek an unthinking-like behavior? Is that something that we should do? Well, let me pose it to you another question, and now that I've muddled your brains about it a little bit. When Christ looked at us, and we offended him, did he go to the cross without thinking about it? Was it an unthinking behavior for him to die and to take on our shame in exchange that we might get his righteousness? Was it, would you consider that to be unthinking characteristic? No, of course not. I don't think... I think uh, this, this question is not easily answered is really what I'm trying to say. There's a lot of gray area in Scripture to play with here. There is a lot of times where Scripture talks about standing up to your authorities. We're going to see Moses standing up to his authority to get his people out of Egypt. We're going to see it in other cases. And then you're going to see other cases where Jesus is like laying down his life for the authorities and doing things like that. It's not a blanket, here's the answer. There's a discernment that goes in here. There is thinking that goes into it. So partly, Einstein, even though he was Jewish, he's uh, not a Christian, there's, there's some truth to what he's saying here. I don't think Jesus ever said, check your brain at the door when it comes to faith and to, comes to discernment and comes to showing respect and honor. I do think it is appropriate to say when something is wrong in the government to say something. But I also think there is a right way to do it. There's a right way to say it, and there's a, there's a respectful way that we should do it as Christians. And it should not come off presumptive and arrogant and like a jerk. So we got to work on that as Christians sometimes. All right. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen, and if you know of any among them, with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Now, this is interesting. So they, they come, they beg, and Pharaoh gives them a great answer. Uh, they say, he says, here, have the best part of the land. It's before you. This is a wonderful answer. They couldn't have asked for a better answer than this. Um, the other part I think that's interesting that puts in here, he says, hey, if you got anybody that's really, you know, talented and special at this, hey, can you take my livestock as well and take care of it as well? What's that about? Well, I think as Christians, there should be something special about our work ethic. Colossians 3, 23, 24 says this. It says, working willingly at whatever you do as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. In other words, Christians should be the best at their job. They, nobody, I mean, the natural known world should crave to want to hire Christians at their job because they work as if they work unto the Lord. So much so that notice what happens here. These guys are willing to take on a need in Egypt that they didn't want to do. That's the last job that any Egyptian ever wanted to do was to take care of sheep. That was like the lowest of low jobs. So I don't care whether you're like the guy that collects the garbage or you're the president of the United States. No matter what you do, 
do it as if you're doing it unto the Lord. And I think us as Christians, we need to look out at the world and say to ourselves, what is the job that nobody wants to do? Where is there a need that I might step into, that I might be able to make a difference in this world in such a way that it would impact the culture around me? I think these are all questions that we should ask ourselves in terms of like, you know, when you're discerning, trying to figure out where is it that God wants me to serve? Where, where is it that my talents can be most brought to bear? Well, where is the need? And where do you align with the need that you can make an impact for the world, for his kingdom? So then Joseph brought his father uh, Jacob in the, and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. They do not equal the years of my pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Now, interesting thing, the word blessed here uh, is used twice. Uh, depending on what translation you use, depending what commentary you read, th- this, I got all kinds of wild answers and conjecture around this term blessed. Um, Pharaoh was... Dis- the way the Egyptians thought that they were divine, they were like a divine race, and Pharaoh was thought himself to be a god himself. So for Jacob to come in here and to preside and give a blessing over top of a god was kind of a weird picture. Um, so some people made a remark to saying that this just shows how great Jacob was. Uh, I don't know if I really agree with that. I think in other commentaries and other words, uh, this was just a, a simply greeting and a goodbye greeting, or a farewell. That's really all this really means. Um, so I try not to read too much into that. But what I do read into is, is what actually Jacob said here. Uh, when he asked him, you know, my, my days are few and difficult, not equal. Of all the things that Jacob could have answered at this point in time, like if you're in front of somebody that's uh, got a lot of authority, there's a temptation that we might want to impress that person, that we might want to come off as like, hey, I'm pretty special, and you should kind of respect me or something. Um, Jacob doesn't seem to have that air about him anymore. If you think about Jacob's uh, life, he's like, he could have been like, hey, I put one over my brother pretty good, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like, oh, I, mean, I put one over the, my father all late. Like, he's got, like, he doesn't brag, he doesn't boast. If anything, like, this guy was knocking on death's door. He surely would have died had he not left Canaan. Five years left in the famine. They were running out of food so much so they were keeping going back and making multiple trips. If they had done nothing, they had have famished and died. So now he seems like a humbler guy. He seems like a guy who like, recognizes his position in the world all of a sudden. As much as God has done, God showed up and talked to this guy. As much as he could have bragged, he did not. He did not boast in anything here. In fact, he said, you know what, I'm not even, my age isn't nearly as uh, long as my father's. His fathers did live, uh, I think, like 180, 175, Isaac and Abraham. He's only going to live to 147. He's 130 at this point. Um, He's just a humbler guy. And I think that speaks volumes of those who walk in Christ. After a while, we start to realize, like, there's really nothing in this world, no achievement that I can accomplish that is really worth boasting in other than what the cross of Christ has done for me. And that's not boasting in you. That's boasting in what the cross is. That's boasting in God. If there's anything about a Christian that should be noticeable is humility and our gratefulness for the cross. 
So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them his property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers, all his father's household, with food according to the number of his, their children. So he got the best, and it was provided for him. Um, I, this harkens back to this idea. So these guys, they're famished. They're, they're looking for salvation. They find their salvation in this man named Joseph. They come down here. They give him land. They get the best part of the land. It's provided for them. It's almost like you feel the words of the cross where Jesus says, it is finished. It's done. It's completed. In a real sense, that's what we have as Christians. When you accept Christ as your Savior, the work of salvation has finished. It's completed. It's done. It has already, you are already saved if you've already trusted in Christ. Salvation has happened the moment you save it. Now, you may struggle with sin. That's still part of, you know, you're still saved, though. You're still working through the world, still working through repentance, still getting sanctified, all these other great, glorious things that are happening to you throughout. There's a sense of already not yet kind of experience that's happening. But the best of what God has to offer for you has already been accomplished. What you, your most greatest need in life it's already been provided for you. Now, you're not experiencing necessarily the storehouse of heaven yet because we haven't crossed over from this world, but to some real extent, the best is already there. It's already yours. You can already claim that God already has given you the best and provided for you. The work has been completed, but it's not quite over yet. And there's a contrast that gets drawn here out throughout chapter 47. Um, as it continues on, it says, There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. And he brought into Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we all die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Now, what's going on here? Well, first off, People are wasting away. That should grab your attention, right? People are dying. Uh, people are getting upset over the coronavirus right now because people are dying. One or three out of every 100 people that are infected are dying. So we're getting, like, it's got our attention. Now, this famine, you know, a lot of people were probably dying. We don't have the mortality ratio necessarily of those who were starving in the country at this point. But uh, I'm guessing if we had apps and things like that and we could have traced it, I, I, it was probably severe. You know, you, you can't live long without food. Um, probably a lot worse than a virus, in fact. So where does this come into play? Well, I think there's a spiritual comparison that's going on here. Jacob comes down with his family. He's saved. He's got food. Seems like his, his, his promised land is kind of happening here a little bit uh, on the Egyptian side for a little while. God's taking care of them. It's finished. The work is done. But on the outside, people are still perishing. Same could be said in a lot of ways for what's going on here. We come in here, we get our spiritual food, we know we need it, we know, we need, we know we've sinned, we know we need a Savior. So we come, we worship, we're a part of this grand body that we, we, we part, uh, become in Christ together. But we can't forget, there's people wasting away spiritually outside. There's people outside of these walls that don't know Christ that are wasting away. And without the hope of Christ in their life, they will continue to waste away. 
They may not recognize it. They may not realize it necessarily. They're not necessarily backed in a corner yet. But at some point in their life, sooner or later, everybody realizes it, I think, to some extent, that they need a Savior. Don't miss the opportunities when you find somebody wasting away to spare a cup of Jesus, a spare a bread. You are just one beggar talking to another beggar where to find a piece of food for salvation. And in a real sense, that's what Christianity is all about. We are no better than the outside world, even though they're wasting away and we're saved. We're no better than them. We just know where to find the bread. So let's remember that we have the bread of life to share with others. Now, what's happening here is people are getting backed in a corner to the point where uh, they're, they're desperate for this bread. Uh, the Bible talks about uh, a lot of spiritual parallels. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And uh, In some sense, there's a dependence here on bread because physically people are dying, right? Um, but they're willing to give up all they have. They have this money, so they're just willing to give it all over so that they might live. Now, this is an interesting proposition here. Is Joseph taking advantage of the people so that he can get rich? I mean, because it says here, they ran out of all their money. Now, did Christ take advantage of us by dying on a cross? I mean, there's a real proposition here that's parallel to this, that did Christ take advantage of, has he backed us in the corner and basically said, there's no other way to heaven except through me. So therefore, he's taking advantage of us. He's making it, this is the only way. These people are now, they're willing to give up anything to survive. That they're backed in a corner. In fact, it reads on, it says, then bring your livestock. And Joseph said, I will sell you food in exchange uh, for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and gave the food in exchange for their horses, their sheep, their goats, their cattle, their donkeys, and brought their, uh, there that year with a food exchange for all of their livestock. So now they've given all their money. They ran out of money. So now what do they do? They give all the, everything that they own in terms of cattle and so forth. They're really getting backed in a corner. Is that what Christ has really done? Is he backed us in a corner and said, hey, there's no other way to heaven? Is this really the parallel that we're taking from this? I mean, Christ exchanges. He, he has this idea throughout Scripture. We go through Leviticus, and we understand even from the beginning that there's sacrifices that are made. Uh, the, you know, uh, Cain and Abel gave a different sacrifice before the Lord. One was worthy, one wasn't worthy. And th- throughout Scripture, you find animals being sacrificed and lambs being sacrificed. And Christ calls himself the lamb and exchanges himself for us. So this great exchange is very common throughout Scripture. This idea of an exchange for life is a thing. Is it a fair thing? Is it, is it is a normally fair thing? When the year was over, they came to him and followed the year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord. In fact, that since our money is gone, our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for us, Lord, except for our bodies and our land. So now it's really getting desperate, right? So first they give all their money, first they give their, then they give their livestock. Now it's like, hey, we got nothing left but our land and our, and our very bodies. He says, why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us our land in exchange for food. We with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So now their very bodies are being given away in terms of just, they just want to live. They just want salvation. All of this in exchange for something greater. Now notice the response here. 
So Joseph bought up all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. And the land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priest because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had enough uh, from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. So other than the priest, everybody now is in bondage. Everybody here is a slave. Like all of Egypt now, has, this seems kind of unfair, does it not? Does it seem like this is not a good proposition? And then Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you uh, so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh, and the outer four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and food as for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of the Lord. Will we, uh, we will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning the land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of its priest that did not become Pharaoh's. Now, I ask again, is it unfair or unjust that they did this? Did they take advantage? Is this just simply the law of supply and demand going on? And if you think about it, like, God's got all the supply and demand going on in his favor when it comes to salvation. I mean, is it really unfair? Notice their response, you've saved our lives. Nobody seems to be complaining. In fact, they're happy to be in bondage. Why? Because they have something better. They have life. They live. That was worth trading everything for. They had no issues with being a slave. You saved our lives. So, Again, is it wrong? I don't think so. These people aren't afraid of bondage. In fact, Scripture talks about Matthew 20, verse 27, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. The only people that bristle at this word slave are, are this people that feel entitled to everything, right? Like, we live in a world that, hey, the government should just give me everything that I need when, when I have problems. Whether I've done anything to earn it or not, I should just be entitled to it. The problem with a lot of people, and I think the economy of scale in terms of God, is many people will approach God as if they are entitled to salvation, as if being a slave is not part of it, as if repenting and changing my lifestyle is not part of it, when in fact it really is part of it. When you come to Christ, the proposition is it's an all-in approach. It's not a, I just want your salvation, but please let me go on and live my life the way I've been living it all the rest of my life. That's not salvation. That's not the proposition that's being made in Scripture. The proposition is, I'll die for you for the sins of your life if you live for me, if you give your trust and whole heart to me. Repent. Change your life. Lead a life become like Christ, follow after me. That's the proposition. It's an all-in proposition every time. We have deceived ourselves, and people have, have often deceived themselves in calling themselves Christian, but have never lived a Christian life ever in their life. Never, they don't even step foot in a church. But yet I've met so many people outside these walls that call themselves a Christian in name only, but don't actually really have any idea what it actually means to be a Christian. That don't really understand the Romans 6.16. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, 
which leads to death, or you choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Which are you attached to today? Which one have you made a commitment to? Are you sold out to your sin? Are you sold out to living for Christ, to becoming more like Him? This story is a wake-up call for all of us, that the proposition is very real, that Christ wants all of you, your time, your talent, your money, all of it, really owes and belongs to Him. How you spend it and what you do with it is a God thing. And we should consider very carefully if we've really given everything over to Him or not. If we've really, truly repented of the things in our life, that's, or do we still look like the rest of the world? Are we still wasting away in a famine and don't even realize spiritually that we're dying because our sins own us? We like our sin too much. We love our sin more than we love our Jesus. Because of that, we're dying away and wasting in a famine. Pray with me this morning. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for scripture, that every, every week, God, there's something incredible here for us to take advantage of, Lord. God, I pray that we would not uh, fall by the wayside and be wasting away our lives and living like the rest of the world, God, that we could look to you and turn to you, and Lord, uh, and take on this great exchange, God, that we would have your righteousness on us. God, so undeserved. God, we deserve the pit. We deserve what Joseph got in the pit and uh, but yet, Lord, you showed us the mercy that all the brothers received, forgiveness, the treasure worth living for. God, I pray that, uh, Lord, we would sense our dire need spiritually, just like these people spense, uh, sensed it physically, that they were willing to give everything for it just to live. God, I pray that spiritually we'd realize, like, there is nothing in this world that's worth hanging on to. It's like it's all worth letting go just to be in eternity with you. God, just to have a life in you is worth letting go of anything. God, I pray that there's anybody here that uh, has not done this or is still holding back, God, that today they'd, they'd let go. And Lord, that they would, uh, they would recognize this proposition is so far worth it.